Let's take our Bibles and open to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3 for our text today. We begin this morning in Jonah chapter 3 verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word today rejoicing in its truth, and we We thank you for the light that it sheds on our wayward condition, on our evil ways, and that your word reveals the way back to you also through faith in Jesus Christ, your son who died to atone for our sins and who rose from the dead to give us new life. Amen. Has God's compassion ever surprised you? Perhaps you were hurting. Perhaps you can think of a time that you felt alone in a trial, only to be comforted by someone who really understood what you were going through. Or maybe you can recall a time you had done wrong, that you had failed morally, that you had cheated, lied, stolen, mistreated someone, abused someone. And you knew that you would face right and fair consequences. And that you might even face condemnation because of it, only to meet with compassion instead. Forgiveness, patience. I think of the literary classic Les Miserables, Victor Hugo's classic, Jean Valjean, how he attempts to steal from the the priest, the very priest who, in compassion, saves him from prison. If you belong to Christ, then you have experienced this compassion because every Christian has received God's compassion when they have deserved his condemnation. The very one that we have wronged has taken pity on us, has redeemed us at his own cost. Maybe you can think of a time when you have wronged or offended Someone, a loved one, maybe it's an employer. But instead of casting you out, instead of exercising uh, their right to make you pay or pay back, they gave you a second chance. According to Jonah 3, the Lord is a compassionate judge. 
He is a compassionate judge. He is judge. We see this all over the scriptures. Let me highlight just a couple. Psalm 67 verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. The Lord is seen as having a a cosmic throne room, courtroom, in which he guides and judges all of the peoples completely fairly, with complete equity. Psalm 96, beginning in verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy. Before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. We see this said again in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to God the judge of all. This supreme title of judge also belongs to the Lord Jesus. As Peter preached in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 42, he is testifying to his own mission, the the apostles' mission. And he, that is Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Judge and even compassionate. Paul would exhort Timothy to faithfulness by writing in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, Preach the word in season and out of season. It is before the Lord as judge that Nineveh's evil has come up before him into his court. They have been tried and found guilty, but the Lord is also compassionate. The Lord is also compassionate. We also see this all over the Bible. Psalm 78, beginning of verse 37. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. This is the nation of Israel, God's people. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. Psalm 103, verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. This is echoed in the New Testament, James chapter 5, verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And again, the Lord Jesus himself displays this compassion. Matthew 9, verse 36, for example. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Where would we be without the compassion of Every one of us ought to ask that question. Where would I be if not for God's compassion? If God is compassionate and yet he is the rightful judge of his creation, the question is, how can wicked, rebellious people know that compassion? 
The story of Nineveh is the story of an evil city that is saved by the compassionate judge. This is how the judge saves the evil city. First, the compassionate judge warns the city. The compassionate judge warns the city. We see in Jonah chapter 3 verse 1 that not only uh, has that Jonah not only has known this marvelous rescue from certain death at the bottom of the sea, but Jonah receives a second chance. You'll remember that Jonah, when commanded, commissioned to go to the city of Nineveh, decided to retire and leave the Lord's presence and no longer serve him. This almost cost Jonah his life, as he is tossed overboard the sea into uh, overboard the ship into the stormy sea, sinks to the bottom. The Lord saves him, but not only does he spare his life, the Lord gives him a second chance. Arise and go. This is repeated on purpose, just like in chapter one, where the Lord says to Jonah, "Arise and go to Nineveh." Again, the Lord says, "Arise and go." This is again a second formal assignment for Jonah. This is a recommissioning. And if you compare chapter three, verses one through three, with chapter one, verses one through three, it's apparent that that the slate is wiped clean for Jonah. Jonah starts over again from square one. Let's do this again. Take two, Jonah. Arise and go to Nineveh. The big difference is Jonah's response in verse three. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. (laughs) Instead of Jonah arose and went to Joppa and chartered a ship to take him to Tarshish. Now, whether Jonah was happy or not about this assignment at this point is not told to us. If chapter 4 tells us anything about it, we would say that maybe Jonah is uh, obeying on the outside but not on the inside, but he at least knows that God's in charge, and if he goes in any other direction, he's going to end up in Nineveh anyway. Could be that. It could be that Jonah has certain aspirations of his own. We'll talk about that more next week as Jonah's motives and heart are exposed. But in any case, I think we can assume that at least a little time has passed since the great fish has spit him out on the beach in chapter 2, verse 10, and that Jonah is cleaned up before he heads the 500 miles north and east to Nineveh, which was about a one-month road trip by camel. The city of Nineveh is described here as an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So Nineveh is a big city. It's an important city. It's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the fact that it is a three days' journey could be measuring how big the city is, that it would take three days to travel from one end of the city or one side of the city to the other side. Could be talking about how long it would take if you were to walk around it. But I think more likely what is being described here in the context of Jonah's mission is that it will take Jonah three days to effectively preach his message, to deliver his message to the city of Nineveh. This is how long it will take him to fulfill his mission. That Jonah will have to spend three days proclaiming. And so it would be strategic. And I think that as Jonah arrives in Nineveh, it's not a quiet, secret little arrival. That Jonah walks into the city, he's probably identified as a non-Assyrian, and he begins to preach. He finds a strategic location, and he starts to proclaim the message. Now, I don't think verse 4 tells us his whole message. I think it was a little bit longer than the one sentence, but probably not much. But the crux is this, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is a warning 
that the Lord has scheduled the destruction of the city. A clock is ticking for Nineveh. Sending Jonah, sending this warning of judgment, these are signs of the Lord's compassion. Why? Because the Lord is not obligated to warn Nineveh. If the Lord never said anything to Nineveh about their pending destruction, he would have been right and justified. But this is compassion. Because without the Lord's revealing his wrath and his anger toward their evil, there is no opportunity to turn to him. There is no opportunity to repent. There is no opportunity to turn from the evil, to cry out for compassion. The natural world around us may give us ample evidence of God's power and his glory, but to know God to know what he thinks and what he says and what he expects of the human race. We're completely dependent on him for revealing himself. We cannot come to those conclusions. That's why the the natural world creation can only go so far. It can only say there is a God, he is powerful, he is glorious. It cannot save It does not communicate how we can be redeemed or restored to that God or the fact that we are messed up and alienated from him. And we can't understand ourselves. We cannot understand our own condition. We cannot understand our suffering or our guilt. And we cannot understand what the remedy is or how to be restored without God revealing it to us. This is why this word is so precious to us. It unfolds, it unpacks, it explains from generation to generation, century to century, millennia to millennia, the thoughts and the will of God. And it's why Jonah's proclamation, though it is a dire warning, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, shows the Lord's compassion for Nineveh. This is how we should understand God's warning of judgment. as his compassion toward us, an appeal to us. That's how Nineveh understands it. It's how they respond. The compassionate judge warns the city, and the compassionate judge sees the city's repentance. Number two, the compassionate judge sees the city's repentance. Now, we're pretty familiar with the story here, so we're not shocked by verse five like we should be, because unexpectedly, Nineveh responds with repentance. And their repentance is demonstrated in two important ways, faith and humility. Faith and humility. And this humility is sorrow, or to use a different word, contrition. We'll talk about this in a minute, what it means to be contrite. But we see their faith here, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed him. Repentance and faith always go hand in hand. They always go together. To say that we have faith without repentance is not true faith. That is not a saving faith. To say that we repent in some way without relying upon, trusting in, and believing God is not true repentance. They always go hand in hand. Believing God is to turn from sin. 
That is repentance. And repenting from sin is to believe God. It's to take him at his word. Faith, you see, was the starting point for the Ninevites. They hear the declaration of judgment. They believe it to be true. They embrace it and they respond rightly. Which is demonstrated by their humility. We see this humble sorrow for sin that follows. And here are the demonstrations. Sackcloth. You ever wear sackcloth? It's not very comfortable. It's also drab and colorless. So by wearing sackcloth, the people of Nineveh are foregoing comfort. They're saying we will set aside our comfortable robes and clothes, anything that would set us apart as wealthy. And in fact, you can see it goes from the highest to the lowest of them. All levels of the of the economic strata, of all the power versus the, the, the unpowerful, the, the oppressed within the city, all of them. Rulers and tradesmen, owners and slaves, they all are wearing sackcloth. It's to set aside festivity. Nobody parties in sackcloth. The king sits in ashes. And I don't think he's alone in this. I think he's the first. But the king of Nineveh sits in ashes. Sitting in ashes is a recognition of mortality and frailty. By sitting in ashes, the Ninevites were saying, our evil has brought us to the brink of destruction, to the brink of judgment. And we have no power to stop God from reducing us to ashes. Our lives are forfeit. That's what they're saying by sitting in ashes. Our lives are as good as consumed. And there is fasting, refraining from eating, and in this case, even from drinking water. By this fasting, they were saying, we refuse to pursue even the basic needs of life because we are no longer under the delusion that we are in charge of our lives, that we can live however we want. Fasting changes the focus from the physical to the spiritual. They were saying, we need your compassion more than we need food and even water. Listen, this is what a repentant person does. A repentant person believes God, recognizes his guilt, humbles herself, confesses his sin and true spiritual state, and in brokenness gives himself over to God's justice. This is what we call being contrite, this contriteness, or if you want, brokenness. This brokenness over sin is what is so often missing from repentance. Repentance, the word itself, means to change the mind or to do a 180. But if there is no sorrow, if there is no contrite spirit, if there is no brokenness, over the marring of God's glory and the harm that is done to others when we sin against them. If there is no sorrow, there is no brokenness, then repentance is actually some form of self-effort, self-justification. I will fix this. I will make this right. Let's just move forward. I remember some years ago, a man that I knew, a friend, 
came to me and said, I need to talk to you. And I said, okay. And sometimes, pastor's life, there are these moments that are serious, and you can tell it's serious. So what's, what's going on? And he said, uh, I need to let you know that I've had an affair. I've cheated on my wife. And I said, have you told her? Have you told her this? And he said, no. I wanted to talk to you first, but I need to, and I'm planning to tonight. I said, okay. So that started a process, a just horrendous, painful process. That marriage is still together today, some many years later. But in the early stages, I remember continuing to follow up with him, and I'd say, how are you doing? Is, it, is this working? And we were in contact, and, and he said, you know, I think, I think the hard part is over. We just need to move on. And I said to him, no, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't just move on. And he was broken, he was hurt, but he wanted to sidestep the pain of being broken over his sin and get life back to normal, which is where we had to say, no, you, do, you, you can't do that. You just don't move back to normal. There must be brokenness. Because if it is just about fixing the situation, fixing my sin, I've lost my temper and I've blown it, and I just say, you know what, that was wrong, let's just move on. That kind of repentance doesn't last. It doesn't last. Having a contrite heart justifies God's judgment on sin. Repentance, a contrite spirit, agrees with God, I deserve your judgment. You are right to judge me. A repentant heart cries out to God like David in Psalm 51 Beginning in verse 3, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be what? Justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, anyone who is willing to say, you're right, your judgment of me is blameless, there is no, nothing wrong or out of place with pending judgment is the person who's really broken. If there is any justification, if there is any excuse made, it's not repentance. Charles Spurgeon was right when he said, true repentance is always accompanied by sorrow. It has been said by some of those of modern times, and his modern times were the late 1800s, that repentance is nothing but a change of mind. Repentance may be and is a change of mind, but what a change it is. It is a change of the whole heart, of the love, of the hate, of the judgment, of the view of things taken by the individual whose mind is thus changed. It is a deep Radical, fundamental change. And you will find that whenever you meet with it in Scripture, it is always accompanied with sorrow for past sin. How desperately we need to repent like Nineveh. They're modeling it. The compassionate judge sees their repentance, their brokenness. For their evil. Thirdly, how does the compassionate judge save an evil city? The compassionate judge spares the city. The compassionate judge spares the city. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, 
God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God saw. He saw their repentance. He saw their brokenness. They didn't just say, we have the intention of repenting. We're going to repent on the inside, but we're going to keep everything on the outside the same as we plug away here. There was visible, demonstrative brokenness. And the judge took those demonstrations of repentance into his notice. And he relented. It means he held back his judgment. Verse 10 makes a vivid play on words that you might not notice right away. When God saw what they did how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the evil. It's the same word. It's translated disaster. It's the same word. Because you see, evil can mean moral evil, this word. It can also mean catastrophe. Some evil has befallen me, meaning some great tragedy or catastrophe. The book of Jonah is making this play on the word. They turned from their moral evil and God relented of the evil, the catastrophe that he had said he would do. Same word as did. When God saw what they did, God relented of the evil that he said he would do and he did not do it emphasized here is what they actually did, how they actually responded, not with just words, but by demonstrating their repentance and their sorrow and their brokenness. That God actually did not do the catastrophe that he had said. Just like Jonah who called out of his distress, look at chapter 2, verse 2. I called out of my distress to the Lord. Nineveh calls out. Same word, chapter 3, verse 8. The text of Jonah is making a connection for us. Jonah calls out as he sinks to the bottom of the sea. The people of Nineveh call out as they sit under the sword of judgment. And like Jonah, Nineveh finds compassion. Instead of destruction, they get a second chance. They get a second chance. Listen, these points about the compassionate judge, warning the city, seeing the city's repentance, sparing the city, these are, these are just a way of laying out the movement of the text. But this is a blueprint of the gospel. I say that because we see the same pattern unfold in Acts chapter 2. Jonah preaches judgment. He confronts the city of Nineveh. They are broken over their sin. They repent, they turn, and they receive compassion. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, day of Pentecost, stands before the city of Jerusalem and confronts the people for their evil way. That is, specifically, for the evil of rejecting and murdering their Messiah, their King, who is Jesus. And what is the people's response? Acts chapter 2 says that they are cut to the heart. That's a contrite spirit. That's a brokenness over sin. They are cut to the heart. And instead of having a strategy of how they're going to make things right, they cry out what? What shall we do? What shall we do? 
they call out. And what do they find? Compassion. Compassion that has been provided in Jesus' death and resurrection. The forgiveness of sins. And then being baptized into Jesus' new people, God's new people, the church. It's the same pattern. It's like a blueprint. At the center of Nineveh's salvation is, God, is God's compassion. So I want to I leave you with some truths about God's compassion. Okay. First of all, God's compassion is just and consistent with his character. God's compassion is just, right, fair, and consistent with his character. Isn't it inconsistent for God to determine one thing and then change it? I mean, we, we expect that of ourselves. We don't know everything. We're not in sovereign control of the universe. We're not even in sovereign control of our car, of our van, as we drive to church on Sunday mornings. So if I say, if I say, you're grounded. And then I receive more data about why my child responded the way they did or what they did. And I relent and I change my mind and I say, you know what? Dad didn't have full information. I didn't understand what was going on. I spoke too quickly. Uh, you're not grounded. Uh, maybe there's this or whatever. We come to expect that of ourselves. We understand, okay. But God? How can God declare judgment on someone and then alter his course? Can God change his mind? It would seem that if he is sovereign and his ways and purposes are perfect, he would never need to change his course of action. And there are some who have used a text like this in Jonah, to teach that God is changing, God is in transition, God is learning, that God is at times needing to react to how humans respond to him and therefore change his course because of certain circumstances he couldn't predict. Is that a, is that a right and biblical view of God? No, it would take me months to show you all of the passages that would say otherwise. On the surface, this sounds reasonable. But in fact, just the opposite is true. Look here at Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 and 8. The Lord himself explains, he reveals to us how this works. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I planned to bring on it. Oh. So... God, in relenting because of people's brokenness and their sorrow over sin, their repentance, is completely consistent with his own being and his own word. In fact, he could not be considered faithful if he did not change the course of action Consistency within his being demands that he change from a course of judgment to mercy when man forsakes his sin. And the purpose of the communication of speaking judgment is to turn that people to himself. It's completely just and completely consistent with God's character. Secondly, God's compassion 
demonstrates both sovereign purpose and human action. It demonstrates it. We see it here in the entire story of Jonah. The story of Nineveh's repentance is told, watch, from the perspective of the Ninevites. It's what I call street level, which makes it stand out from the rest of the book where God's direct and sovereign action is so visible and central, hurling the storm across the sea, not allowing the ship to either escape, move anywhere, or go down and sink. The sending or the appointing is the word the book uses, the appointing of the fish, the commanding of the fish to spit Jonah out. We're going to see some more examples in chapter 4. We can tell this is from the perspective here in chapter 3 of the Ninevites. For one thing, uh, throughout the book of Jonah, the Lord is called the Lord, Yahweh, his covenant name, with the exception of verses 5 through 10 of chapter 3, where he is called God. Because the people of Nineveh do not know Yahweh as a covenant God. They are not bound to him by the covenant. They don't know him like Israel knows him. And they call him God instead of the Lord, Yahweh. So you can see that the story is being told from their perspective. Also, notice the king in verse 9 views God's pardon as a hopeful possibility, not a guaranteed outcome. Who knows? God may turn and relent. So we're seeing the drama of repentance and forgiveness unfold from the human side of things. That's what I mean by the street-level view instead of a, a bird's-eye view or behind the veil. We see this in this, the same thing in chapter 2. When God sends the storm, the judgment, Jonah calls out, God sends the fish to save him. The Ninevite salvation in chapter 3 is also framed by God's sovereign action. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, God sends Jonah with the proclamation of judgment. Why? Hints at what the Lord's intentions are for the city of Nineveh, what he intends to do. And chapter 4 tells us that Jonah knew it, or at least he suspected it what God was going to do. Chapter 3, verse 10, God is the one who relents. It is in his power to destroy. Only the one with the right and the power to judge can relent. So we see this mystery played out then in Jonah chapter 3. God is sovereignly at work. He is causing the salvation of the city of Nineveh. But Nineveh is saved because of their repentance. Verse 10, when, the God, uh, when God saw, God relented. So God's compassion demonstrates this tension, this mystery, that God is sovereignly at work, but that humanity we are called upon to act and respond Thirdly, God's compassion extends to entire people groups. God's compassion extends to entire people groups. God's concern for entire people groups, not just individuals, but God's concern extends to cultures, societies, entire cities, nations. Now, there are a number of places in the Old Testament that we see God's compassion kind of leaks out from the people of Israel as covenant people to people outside, in particular individuals 
For example, Rahab. Joshua chapter 2. Rahab is a, is a local. She's a Canaanite. She ends up in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. She ends up as an example of true saving faith in James chapter 2. There is Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. He's a captain of Syria with leprosy visited by the prophet Elisha who dunks himself seven times in the river and is healed. There's Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon in Daniel chapters 4 and 5 who because of his arrogance is struck mad and wanders around in the fields unshaven, unbathed until the Lord restores him, opens his eyes. But here the Lord shows compassion on a whole people group, an entire society. Nineveh is a city, and it's Nineveh that's referred to here, but Nineveh is the capital. It's the center of the entire Syrian empire. The whole empire isn't mentioned. But at the very least, the city. Even their livestock matters. Does the Lord not love nations? Does he not love cities, societies? Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. See the Lord's compassion for an entire city. What about Genesis 18, when God is ready to judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Who intervenes? Abraham. He intercedes. says, what if, what if there are just, you know, 20 people? Okay, if there are 20 people, I'll relent. 20 righteous people who are not living in the evil. Can't find them. Gets all the way down to 10 and counts them down. So I forget where it even starts. 150, whatever. Works them down keeps interceding. God says, okay, 20. Gets down to 10. They can't even find 10 people. But God is willing to go down. If he can find 10 people in that city, I'll spare the whole city. Psalm 66 verse 7 says, he keep, his eyes keep watch on the nations. Psalm 72, 11, let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. Psalm 86, 9, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. It's remarkable, isn't it, that the book of Psalms, Israel's book of worship, their songbook, speaks so frequently of the nations? It's one reason the Psalms are so transferable to us in our life's experiences. God cares about the nations. He cares about the peoples. Do we have the hope today that God will do the same? We do because of Jonah 3. We do. We have the same hope that the Lord's compassion will spare and save, and redeem, and restore. Because Jesus' coming and the gospel only have made God's compassion clearer. It has only made God's compassion closer, more accessible. In fact, Peter reminds us of the Lord's compassion for us even today. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Let's pause right there. Peter's saying is this, that the Lord has pronounced judgment. That's what 2 Peter, it's a whole letter really is talking about. The Lord has pronounced judgment. Judgment's coming. The world will be consumed. That's what Peter says. 
But he warns of those who will mock and say, right, like it's only been 2,000 years since Jesus was here, since you claim he was here. And we keep on doing whatever we want. There's nothing coming. It's the scoffing, the mocking, the denial. And God's people are tempted to feel the same. This is taking forever from generation to generation. What are we still doing here? The kingdom has come. The battle is over. The glory is yours. What are we still doing here? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. That's the promise. Salvation out of the consuming judgment that's coming. But is patient toward you. That's you, everybody, you. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so the same call goes today that went to Nineveh, right? The world will be overthrown. The invitation and the call is to call out to him, as Jonah did from from the depths of the sea, as Nineveh does under the sword of judgment. Call out to him and receive by faith compassion, the forgiveness of sins. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be sovereignly at work in the hearts of people to draw them to yourself, your compassion. Ah, Weren't the broken and the convicted, were they not drawn to you, Lord Jesus, because of your compassion? They were, and so are we. We come to you because we know that you know that we are guilty, that we are deserving of judgment, And that if you do not have compassion on us, we have no hope. Our lives are forfeit. But you have had compassion. You have provided for the forgiveness of sin. And we may still feel the weight of our guilt, our rebellion, our self-justification. But Lord, it is that very brokenness that brings us to your compassion to know it. Thank you for for understanding. Thank you for giving us a compassion we could never have grasped on our own or attained to, but that only comes from your hand. It is why we can sing this morning, why we can come to your table, why we can worship, why we can love one another, why we can extend the same compassion and forgiveness to each other. And we praise you for that this morning and rejoice in it and say, so be it, amen.